What does it mean to connect to your future at Lake Michigan College? They connect you to your future opportunities. They partner with local industries and employers, ensuring their programs align to the needs of the community's workforce. Lake Michigan College can help you get to the future you want. Visit lakemichigancollege.edu. Good morning. My name is John Smetanka, and the name of our program is With Respect. This morning's guest and with respect is an old friend of this program, Anne Fortier. Uh, We've uh, talked in the past about herself and her work. Uh, We're going to talk about her new work now. She's an author from, originally from Denmark, now a resident of Canada, and has written two books uh, that did very, one has done very well in the the best-selling list, uh, Juliet, and we'll talk a little bit about that one, but Her new book is called The Lost Sisterhood, a fascinating book. Anne Fortier, with respect. Anne, how are you this morning? I'm very well, John. Thanks. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm great. Now, let's do a little background because some of our listeners uh, may not know the intimate details of your life that you told us before, uh, like getting a, a, a bagel at a at a, cook, a coffee shop or something like that in, in Michigan when you were actually here, and that uh, the horrible experience that you had, uh, I thought was a great story. But you are from Denmark originally. And what part? I am. I am. Yeah. Sorry, John. I just the pause was so long. Yes. Uh, whereabouts in Denmark? I was born and raised uh, just about as far away from Copenhagen as you can get. Uh, in in western Jutland, it's a little peninsula that sticks up from uh, from Germany. <clears throat> and uh, you know the language out there is uh, you know if you look across the North Sea, you can see England. Oh, really? You know, if you have very strong binoculars. So I grew up among the fishermen on the North Sea, and uh, and the language out there, the dialect that I speak, uh, is is extremely. Um, it, it has a very English ring to it, and it's it's definitely not the fine uh, pitch that they have in in uh, in Copenhagen. Mm-hmm. Now, your mother was a teacher, as I recall, uh, and you uh, or taught you. Um, about English and about uh, uh, English movies and, and Shakespeare. Yes, she did. She, my mother has always been passionate about languages and, uh, and uh, would often get me out of bed late at night to, to come and see Sir Leslie Howard or uh, Laurence Olivier uh, perform uh, on, on our old black and white TV in the, in the, in the living room. And so from, from a very early age, I grew up with English and I grew up with a love of Italian. We'd always have Italian opera blaring. You can just imagine how that thrilled the neighbors across the hedge. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, this, uh, that part of, of Denmark uh, has got to have some ring to Shakespeare with uh, Hamlet, doesn't it? Absolutely. Well, I think all Danes are mildly insulted by the suggestion that there's something rotten in the state of Denmark, <laughs> as we learn in Hamlet. But uh, yes, Hamlet is very much a part of of, of our culture. Um, although, uh, of course, uh, Shakespeare's version is is uh, has, doesn't have very much to do with actual Danish history. But there was a, a legendary king of Denmark called Hamlet that uh, that Shakespeare built this character on. And the story itself was something he created? The story itself, yes. I mean, as you know, Shakespeare loved Greek tragedy. And, and 
all of almost all of his plays draw on this rich tradition from southern Europe, uh, the classics, you know, and the sort of incestuous relationships and, you know, uh, the Oedipus, uh, you know, complex and, and all those things that you find in Greek tragedy. So I would I would venture to say that Shakespeare took some some of those Greek tragedies and uh, took their ideas and, and themes and sort of imposed them on a more Nordic tradition uh, so that you have something that um, that's neither fish nor fowl, actually, but wonderfully Shakespeare, right? Yes. Now, I recall that also that you learned your English uh, through watching TV, uh, watching the plays of Shakespeare or other movies uh, on television, but you you actually were forced to listen, weren't you? I was. One of the wonderful things about growing up in a small country with a small language group is that we don't dub the films. I, I personally think that, you know, if, if we need to wage a war somewhere, we should wage a war on dubbed films, because um, <laughs> that is that is the one thing that prevents uh, people from learning languages. Uh, so let those films be in their original language and then put subtitles underneath, uh, because that is exactly how you learn a language. Now, in my case, my mother was was so <laughs> such a such a perfectionist that she didn't even want the subtitles. So whenever we watched an English film, she would actually she had the perfect chair she'd carry in from the kitchen and had the perfect height with a little dish towel draped over the seat over the over the back, and it would perfectly cover the subtitles. (laughs) So there you are, you know, 12 years old, and you've uh, been having English in school for a couple of years, and and you're forced to understand what they're saying. You don't even have those Danish subtitles underneath. Well, the finished product of your language, that is, your English, is uh, well worth the effort, obviously, because your English is excellent. Now, but you left uh, Denmark after getting a degree, I recall a PhD, uh, in um, thought, classical thought, I did. It's actually called History of Ideas, this field, which turns out to be the perfect fit for anyone who'd like to be an author. Uh, it's sort of, uh, it consists in history of philosophy, uh, logic, um, basically history as we know it, uh, art history, music history, um, history of you know, natural, natural sciences and so on. So it's, uh, it's a wonderfully all-round look at the past that doesn't limit itself to socioeconomic uh, area, uh, you know, issues and doesn't limit itself to one particular aspect of the past. It really is, it, it's really a, a tool for, for, for sort of um, immersing oneself in the past and, and sort of recreating the past, which comes in extremely handy when you're an author, especially, of course, when you're writing historical novels, as, as I'm doing, and, and you really want to invite the reader to come along with you uh, on, this, on this walk through the past uh, and recreate everything, the sensations, the, 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 the architecture, the music, the ideas that permeated uh, this particular period that you're writing about. In your first book, Juliet, you took advantage of the classic, again, Shakespeare story of Romeo and Juliet and tracked it back, uh, doing just what you just described, that is, going into the, to the details, to the life of uh, uh, two different eras, that is, the current time and a different time. Uh, tell us you know, briefly about that, Juliet. Where, where did that come from, and uh, uh, how did it, you produce what you did? Well, it's funny because uh, a lot of people assume that I was uh, mining uh, Shakespeare to come up with a good uh, subject for a novel, but but actually, I never, uh, I was never particularly fond of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. I always thought it was there was something somewhat annoying about it. Romeo is such a whiner, and uh, and Juliet is so silly to to throw away her life. Uh, for this guy who climbed up on her balcony a couple times, you know, I, I just it just didn't really sit well with me as a modern young woman. But what happened was that I went to Siena with my mother. Mom and I have always gone to Italy together. Mom's a, a complete Italophile and lived there when she was young. She's fluent in Italian and 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 has her own little community there. Um, 
so, so she wanted to introduce me to Siena. We'd always been going to northern Italy, to, to Verona, incidentally, where, of course, we know that Juliet's balcony is. But now she wanted to go to Siena, and that is where we discovered that in this incredibly atmospheric little town in Tuscany that looks as if it, you really feel as if you're stepping right into the Middle Ages. That was where the original story for Romeo and Juliet was set, over a century before Shakespeare composed Romeo and Juliet. And that was what gave me the idea, wow, what, a, what an incredible opportunity to discover this, this amazing fact that this story was moved from Siena to Verona. Why don't we take it back to its origins and imagine what it could have looked like if it had, in fact, uh, happened here. And so, you know, with the aid of my mother, who did most of the research for this book, um, we basically excavated every interesting detail uh, about Siena history, the feuding families, and and the contrada, the neighborhood uh, rivalries, and the palio, of course, the famous horse race uh, that takes place in Siena twice a year. So it, it became a book, it became sort of a declaration of love uh, to Siena and, uh, and, um, and to Romeo and Juliet in a, in a, in a, in a sort of a more, uh, more original form, take, where, where the story basically is taken back to the setting where, that was perhaps a little more faithful uh, to the actual historical uh, situation uh, in the 14th century. So you wrote the book, Juliet, which um, I believe was on the New York Times bestseller list uh, for whatever, a period of time, but also it's going to be made into a movie, I understand. It certainly is, and uh, and it's funny because right now I'm I'm waiting to get that script in the mail. Uh, it's supposed to be finished. Um, the, the the screenplay that basically is the adaptation, uh, oh sorry, the, the adaptation of of the book from from book to film, and uh, it's been underway for a long time. They had to change writers along the way, uh, but it looks as if it's finally happening. Good. Congratulations. We'll look forward to seeing it um, uh, in our neighborhood theaters. We're going to take, <laughs> I do, too. Thank gonna, you. We're going to take a break right now. We're talking to Anne Fortier, who is the author of the book Juliet, um, published some years ago, but is now being made into a movie. But also, we'll be talking now about her new book, The Lost Sisterhood. This is John Smetanka. The name of our program is With Respect. Back on With Respect, talking to Anne Fortier, the author of Juliet and The Lost Sisterhood. And this is John Smetanka. And when we broke, um, we talked about your first book, and it's moving into uh, uh, theaters near us someday. But uh, you're here today because I'm fascinated by this book, The Lost Sisterhood. And uh, I'm going to touch just before we deal with that a, a one one background point uh, about your life, because as I recall, you came to the United States uh, and uh, did a lot of cinematography or documentary work, and in fact did a one on the uh, the Russo-Finnish War of all things. Uh, tell us about that, because it does come into the Lost Sisterhood. It's true. Um, I worked on a documentary. I, I, I co-produced a documentary uh, called Fire and Ice, uh, the, Russo, uh, the, the winter war between Russia and Finland. And it's, I, actually, people have told me that they found it on the Internet. So apparently you just go and, and search for Fire and Ice. Uh, the the winter war of Finland and Russia, <clears throat> and and you can see it online in in some way. Um, so 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 this this was a, a huge project uh, that I was extremely enthusiastic about, uh, and this was about uh, some ten years ago we did this, 
um, a, a group of, of Finnish people in the United States wanted to, to let the world know uh, about the Finnish effort uh, during World War II, which is often forgotten. And it's a, it's a fascinating piece of history that shows how uh, the Finnish uh, people was able to um, hold back or resist the uh, the invasion by Stalinist Russia in 1939-1940 uh, uh, in what's known as the Winter War, um, and uh, and it is just a, an incredibly interesting insight into the determination of a very small country that doesn't have the means, but how you know even the largest military machine on the planet is helpless against people who believe who truly believe. Uh, that they are fighting evil. This is a uh, parallel. History has parallels, as you show in your in your way, both in the Juliet book and also in the Lost Sisterhood. There are parallels between different ages, uh, and but historical events can because they're human. People are people. You know, humankind uh, is different, but it changes, and so. But it, but it's the same. And uh, in the Russo-Finnish War, you had, as you say, a small country on the border of Russia that um, did not want to be taken over by Stalinist Russia and fought them to a standstill. And as you say, again, it was a small country, didn't have the same weapons, modern weapons, armament, uh, personnel to, uh, to fight. But they did, and they, and they won. At least they held them to a standoff. They absolutely did. I mean, what they won was their independence. Mm -hmm. um, they were not um, uh, pulled into the Soviet Union. If you notice, if you look at a map, you can see it's quite extraordinary, actually, that Finland, of all the countries that far east, was not absorbed into or handed over to the Soviet Union by people like Churchill. Mm -hmm. uh, they felt, these world leaders felt that Finland had fought so hard for its independence that they deserved to keep it. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened. So you can say that that was certainly a victory. Uh, also because, as you, as you see now, with all the countries that were under the yoke of, um, of communist, uh, well, I don't even want to call it economy, uh, are struggling so hard now to catch up with the market to make themselves, uh, you know, noticeable on the market. Finland has no such problem. You know, the, the cell phones, you know, Nokia are from Finland. They have all sorts of famous brands uh, that we don't even think about. They're actually from Finland, and that was because Finland was able to stay in the market and were not put in prison and imprisoned by these five-year plans and this completely horrendously mistaken uh, socialist economy. I watched Fire and Ice, and I was struck by uh, its quality. It was a high-quality uh, work, and uh, I, I, as I recall, it won an award. It did, yes. It won an Emmy for direction, a very gifted director, the executive producer on the project, uh, who very much believed in the story, and um, it was one of the last projects that he did in his life. He, always, he, talk, he told me... He, he considered it his swan song, um, and uh, it uh, yes, it was very well received, and uh, and has been shown on the PBS system, and has also aired in in Europe, of course, in many different countries. So it's definitely worthwhile looking into this, and uh, and of course uh, looking into uh, one of the things that we illuminate in this film is the efforts of the women. You almost never hear about the women in these uh, war documentaries. It's always about the men in, on the battlefield. But in this case, the Finnish women fought very, very hard uh, to help the men. They were sort of the home front, but they were, you know, they were the nurses. They were the ones uh, making sure that uh, by, you know, one I'll give you an example. For example, I, I spoke to a veteran who said that he, of all his, of his entire group, he was the only one who didn't have frostbite uh, resulting in uh, the amputation of all his toes. He was the only one in his group that kept his toes. And that was because um, his wife had, so, <laughs> had made him uh, 50 pockets. She'd, she'd put them on his old home guard uniform. She'd put all these pockets on the uniform and she had knitted him all these socks. 
so that he could change socks all the time, always have dry socks to put on his feet. And that is that should not be underestimated. That is how you win a war. It's mm -hmm. by taking care of your people and make sure that they have dry feet. The old saying, uh, an army marches on its stomach, as I recall, Napoleonic uh, comment, but uh, it also marches on its feet. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, let's roll over and to talk about the lost sisterhood. This, uh, I read it, uh, it is 500 and some pages, which ordinarily, which I would say, mm, let's do the short version, let's get the Reader Digest, Reader's Digest version, but... I found it fascinating. How did this get started? It's actually a very old interest of mine. Um, even before I, I worked on, on Juliet and, and, and got the idea for the Juliet book, I, I was uh, working on the Amazons. I was doing uh, research on the legends of the Amazons and the whole Amazon tradition, partly because my doctoral work in the university was about the ancient world. It's always been a passion of mine. So for me, uh, what was particularly interesting was that when you, as an historian, if you look at the ancient world, it is very much dominated by men. It is uh, the names that survive are the names of senators and philosophers and soldiers and generals and so on. The odd stubborn uh, barbarian chief will also make it into uh, <laughs> into history, but <laughs> by and large, uh, they're men. Uh, what interested me was that this is a group of women. The the book is about a group of women called the Amazons, the Amazon warrior women, and uh, who who are fringe players uh, in 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 the ancient world. They were the barbarians at the gate. They were the ones who were constantly threatening uh, the stability of of this Greek patriarchy that they had created, where you know philosophers like Plato and Aristotle were were cozily writing their philosophy and teaching in their schools. Meanwhile, uh, on the edge of the forest are these uh, women with their bows and arrows and their horses uh, waiting to uh, to invade and, and upset that uh, philosophical tranquility of ancient Greece. It's fascinating. Uh, it was fascinating for me to, to look into that, <laughs> to that aspect of, um, of the, the ancient Greek world that, that we learned so much about in school. Now, in, the, in Juliet, you, your mother did the research, the historical research into uh, Siena of the original Romeo and Juliet, but this one is completely different. It's not Italy. It's, in fact, all over the Mediterranean. Many different locations in the Mediterranean flow into this book. What about you? Did you travel to all these places? I did. <laughs> yes, I did. And even though Mum was not actively doing research for me because it would have been too dangerous <laughs> to ask her to travel, I think, alone to these places and look into the shady underbelly of, you know, the <laughs> the corruptions of the art world and go to Istanbul and so on. I just wouldn't have felt good about that. But fortunately, uh, I have been traveling quite a bit. Uh, when I was younger, my mom even took me to, we went to uh, the Sahara Desert together because she knew it was a, an old interest of mine. And so we went, went there together when I was a teenager. And, um, and later on, I traveled, you know, how in, in Europe, young people will often go on Eurorail where they take the train around Europe with their backpacks on. Mm -hmm. And that was, that's very much the thing to do in Europe. When you graduate from high school, you, you strap on your backpack and take your best friend and you go around uh, Europe for a couple of months. And so I did too with my best friend. And uh, and we traveled to all the, I think I can safely say, <laughs> all the ancient archaeological sites um, in in the Greek uh, world. And I also traveled to Turkey and, and looked at the archaeological sites there and so on. And, um, and, 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 and I won't, I, I don't want to spoil the plot by saying where they go after Turkey. Uh, but trust me, I've been there. Uh, and it will become apparent to the reader, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, by reading the book. And so, uh, so, and mom was, was along with me on some of those trips too. So mom, mom is always uh, with me. Uh, even, even if she's not there physically, she's always with me in spirit. How long have you been writing this book? 
Good question. Um, I know that I was working on the outline in 2009 uh, and uh, perhaps didn't really start writing in earnest until uh, after Juliet came out in 2010. So it's taken me perhaps three years now, uh, including the edits, uh, to write this book. Uh, but it's, as, as you said, it's, it's a huge book. And you actually get two stories in one, you might say. So it takes a lot of research. You have your present day story that needs to be very, I mean, everything needs to be completely accurate. But that can all, that also takes research. And so does, of course, the, the ancient narrative, because you have these two women on a parallel journey. Uh, your, your modern-day um, language expert from Oxford, Dr. Diana Morgan, and then you have your, uh, you know, 3,000 year, years ago, uh, Amazon queen, Marina, um, whose origins, uh, who starts out as a priestess in North Africa. Uh, and, uh, and so you can see it's a, there are lots of diverse strains that have pulled into this story, and um, it's uh, it's been a it's been a rush to finish it. It really has because uh, you could once you once you get into those sorts of stories, you could just go on forever. And it takes an editor to say, Anna, stop it, <laughs> which is what they eventually did. <laughs> there, there is one Moby Dick, and we don't need any more. <laughs> Precisely. Uh, at least you didn't do two hundred pages on whales. Uh, now, this this is. One of the places that you highlight, you just mentioned, was the origins of the, the modern-day woman who is uh, the central part of your uh, plot uh, in, uh, in uh, academic England, and I believe it was Oxford or Cambridge. But uh, you talk, that's part of the world you start with, and you track that lady on through a number of experiences. And so, did you know about? Uh, did you study at Oxford and Cambridge, or what? What not? I certainly did. Uh, I, I spent. I, I, I did part of my uh, uh, doctoral work uh, at uh, Corpus Christi College at Oxford. Uh, in fact, that was where I met my husband, who was also doing his uh, doctoral work uh, at the same college at the time. Um, so, so I have very happy memories from there, of course. Um, but, but um, people. Uh, People always ask me how much, how much, uh, or how how much of this character you're writing about, how much is you? And I have to say that uh, I'm I'm probably more like uh, Dr. Diana Morgan than I'm like uh, Julie Jacobs from Juliet. This is more me, uh, the the main character in the present day story in the in the new book in the Lost Sisterhood. It's it's really uh, based very much on my own experience at Oxford. Um, of course, when you write fiction, you always have to, you know, you always have, you always need to to make things a little bit more. You have need more contrast than than reality sometimes offers. So, you know, the evil people are just a little more evil, and the good people are just a little better, <laughs> you know, to make it interesting. But, but so there really aren't any evil people that need some challenge when you write a book. And Diana Morgan has a lot of challenges here. Uh, she she is an expert on ancient languages. She's she's an expert. I never I never have been an expert on in, ancient languages. So she's perhaps you know what I what I would have loved to be uh, if I had continued uh, in academia. I would have loved to be Diana Morgan, uh, and who's approached by this mysterious man, inviting her to come and and visit an an, an excavation, an archaeological dig, in in an undisclosed uh, location. And of course, uh, she goes uh, because she's an um, adventurous. May... I'm sorry. She's an adventurous. She's an adventurer, All and right. of course, she goes. Uh, occasionally, readers, uh, there, there, there's always the odd reader who says, "I didn't like this book," and and they'll say, "I it doesn't make sense that she would go on this adventure." <laughs> and I think to myself, "Well, you don't have much of a book if she doesn't, do you?" So, uh, <laughs> so of course she goes. She wants to see what's going on, and in in the case of Diana, uh, she's also looking to solve the mystery of what happened to her grandmother, yes, um, who disappeared. We'll get to that in a minute. And, we're going to we're going to take a short yes. break. Uh, this we're talking to uh, Anne Fortier, uh, who is the author of *The Lost Sisterhood* and uh, a previous book, uh, soon to be made into a movie called *Juliet*. This is John Smetanka. The name of our program is *With Respect*. We'll be right back. 
We're now back on With Respect with Anne Fortier. Uh, and by the way, Anne, I am pronouncing the R, but I think in, en français it would be uh, Fortier. Which do you go by? Exactly. Yes, well, that depends on where I am, John, <laughs> because, because uh, uh, when I'm in the States, I just say Anne Fortier. All right. And here in, in, in Quebec, of course, it's Anne Fortier. Ah, that's right, because you've got that, that other R, which has to be put into a Parisian R. Uh, okay. Exactly. Now, uh, as I say, we're, this is With Respect, and I'm John Smetanka, and we're talking to Anne Fortier. And... Anne, give us a short, no, no uh, spoilers, description of your of your book, and so you get to put this, and I I don't interrupt and tell you tell the reader what it's all about. Wow. Okay. Well, that's great. It's uh, the book is this is the new book, The Lost Sisterhood, and uh, and the the overarching theme here is is the search for the. Amazon warrior women that we know from Greek mythology. Uh, in the book, you have you have two strains here. You have a present-day narrative that's uh, that's uh, uh, that's um, you know inter, it's sort of braided in with the with the ancient narrative um, that's set three thousand years ago. And you have these two women on parallel journeys. Uh, one in the present day, uh, our expert from from Oxford University is trying to. Uh, prove that the Amazon warriors really existed. Uh, and her uh, parallel in the ancient world, uh, Marina, is, uh, is a priestess in North Africa whose temple is, uh, is demolished by Greek pirates. And she and her friends go out in search of these pirates uh, to, to try to free their stolen sisters. And and this is the origin. In my version, this is the origin of the Amazons. And so through through Marina, the first queen of the Amazons, we travel uh, through all the lands that are known in the Amazon legends. We go to to um, to uh, Agamemnon's uh, country in in Greece, in ancient Greece. You my, know, my Agamemnon. Exactly, where where the the Lion King ruled, and uh, and I, I'm sure we've all seen this film Troy with Brad Pitt, where Agamemnon, uh, the Greek king, and his brother Menelaus go to to Troy to get Helen back, the beautiful Helen, whose whose face launched a thousand ships, right? <laughs> and, and so uh, so we we get to to meet Agamemnon, we go to Troy with the Amazons, and uh, and we get to see a quite a different version of the Trojan War. And, uh, and I've, I've, throughout the book, I'm, I'm basing my description on um, archaeological studies, uh, theories that I've read uh, that are trying to find out what really happened, because um, I think people agree that something happened at Troy. It wasn't all a legend. The question is, what exactly happened? And the historians who've read my book are, are thrilled uh, at, at my version of the Trojan War. So I hope that the readers will be, too. Uh, I, once I was uh, uh, friends with or acquaintance to a, a British judge who, so, who uh, after I came back to the States, sent me a, a color photograph of himself uh, in his full um, dress robes and, and wig and whatnot, and he was describing all of it. At the end of the description, he wrote, The face you will readily ascertain is different from the face that launched a thousand ships and topped the towers, the topless towers of Ilium. Um, and that little bit of humility was delivered with uh, very droll. But uh, this story of Troy and the, the Trojan War, which was encapsulated in uh, the uh, in uh, the Odyssey and the Iliad uh, by Homer uh, has fascinated people for thousands of years. And as I recall, there was a von I can't remember Schlieffen or von something or other who was the first uh, German archaeologist who got to the original sor sor uh, site of Troy and sort of mucked it up a bit uh, in his uh, conviction that he would find the original Troy of the Trojan War. And that, 
that sort of um, uh, archaeological barbarism uh, set back the uh, the genuine study of the history of Troy and the and that war some uh, some maybe a long period of time. Absolutely. This is uh, the famous Schliemann, who Schliemann. You know, in some ways uh, is responsible for, for, for starting the field of, of archaeology. But, but you might say he started it with, a, with, with some fireworks and not perhaps as discreetly as he should have. So he's both a hero and a villain <laughs> to archaeologists. Um, and, and I will say that um, uh, in my book, it is, I do go into quite a bit, I, I, you know, quite extensively uh, what happened at Troy with the excavations with Sliman too. It's part of the story. And, of course, one of the wonderful things about having these two parallel narratives where my people go to the same place 3,000 years apart is that you can have these modern-day experts um, and main character discuss what really happened here. And then you can go in the next chapter to actually show it. Uh, and, of course, very often uh, our present-day experts are mistaken. They are not actually sure what happened, uh, or they, they, make, they draw the wrong conclusion from the evidence. And in the case of Schliemann and the excavations at Troy, what's particularly sad about it is that not only you can't, well, you can say he set back, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, the science <laughs> a while, but you, you might also say that he, he ruined our chance of ever fully knowing what happened, because um, it's not just a question of delay, it's a question of having so utterly messed up that uh, archaeological site that, that nothing is left. Um, and and this is one of the the problems that that our you know main characters face in the lost sisterhood is what are we to make of of what's left here, uh, and that's one of the things that this is one of those mysteries of the ancient world that I find so compelling, um, you know. There's not really no need as an as an author to go and invent mysteries because there are so many incredibly juicy mysteries in the real world to look into. And this is what I'm doing with this book. You know, I'm looking at the Trojan War. I'm looking at the reality behind the Amazon warrior women and the myths about them. You know, did they really cut off one breast to better pull the bow or throw the, the, the spear? And also, you know, in a place like, uh, you know, Crete, a lot of us have, have visited uh, this big palace, the Knossos Palace on Crete, and wondered what really happened there. Was there a labyrinth, that famous labyrinth where mm-hmm. the Minotaur lived? And did the Minotaur really eat children? You know? <laughs> so yeah, are we right. dealing with a cult of, of human sacrifice? Uh, you know, this is one of those big mysteries that I'm also diving into in this book. And oh, there, there are lots of things um, to, to, uh, to investigate, and it's, it's lots of fun doing it. The characters that you you, you uh, write about or you create um, are are actually fascinating, and uh, they have interrelationships uh, one with the other throughout the book. That uh, it's always what seems to be true later on turns not to be true, or what is seems to be a lie turns out to be truth. It's the it's kind of like we go through life we're we're constantly unveiling the. Uh, the artichoke, pulling each leaf, and you say, oh, wait a minute, there is more below, below the surface here. Um, that is the author's, and your author's, uh, you as the author, your, um, your way of keeping people's interest, I think, isn't it? Well, absolutely. I mean, I, I, it, it really is a challenge, though. If, if you're writing a, a very plot-driven book, full of action and you know, page-turning cliffhangers and so on, you know, people tend to forget the people, the characters a little bit, and they become maybe a little woody. But for me, uh, the, the starting point and the big turning point is always uh, the characters. And, and I, I, I'm telling you, I, I could write a book just about uh, five people in one room um, because I find just the interactions, the dynamics between people what we think, what we fear, uh, what we impose on ourselves and our delusions and our hopes, all those things, all those, that whole universe inside each person, I find endlessly fascinating. And, uh, and I think that, that, that 
that is perhaps why, um, you know, I, I think very carefully about each character, even the characters who only have a few lines to speak. They have a fully fledged life in my mind, and I think that is key uh, to describing characters and to making them compelling to the reader as well. I, I love my characters. <laughs> I really do. Even the villains, I sort of love them. And and I love to describe, I love to visualize them and, and find the very best, most, most economic way of making the reader fully feel what they are like, to sort of see it in their mind's eye what this person is like, you know, and the description of people and the dialogue between people, that is, that is what I enjoy the most when I write. Well, you know, I, I like all different kinds of books that, that um, uh, either history but, or science fiction or, or uh, spy stories or whatever. And I will tell you that for on the one end, you have the, for example, the James Bond, the original Ian Fleming books, and they're fascinating, but they are, unfortunately, uh, somewhat one-dimensional. Um, the villains are really, really bad, and they never get any better, and you don't know why they are so totally and completely evil. But in this book, um, not only are the characters Dickensian in that they have certain tags, um, um, you know, Dickensians such as Uriah Heep or, or somebody you remember by a particular tag, I'm, I'm an humble man. But, but, but your characters are, um, some are eccentric, uh, some are normal, quote-unquote, uh, but each of them have depth, and I, I enjoyed that part. It, kept, it actually kept my interest going through the, uh, the whole book uh, because I wanted to see how the nuances of their characters and their uh, their lives um, uh, developed, and and how this whole process, how it ends, and I, uh, I should I give the ending to this book? No, I guess not. No, 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 no. <laughs> but you can you can say that there's. There's that's, that's, that's tragedy in the book, but there's a happy ending. All right. All <laughs> I think we right. can okay. safely say. It's a, a Canadian-American ending. Okay, but uh, <laughs> yeah. we're going to take another short break. Uh, this is John Smetanka, and our program is With Respect, and we're talking to Anne Fortier, who is the author of The Lost Sisterhood. Uh, we're on uh, With Respect, and we'll be right back. We're now back on With Respect with Anne Fortier, who is the author of The Lost Sisterhood, talking about the, the myth or the reality of the Amazon uh, warrior, women warriors, uh, from 3,000 years ago. Uh, and uh, her book is laced with archaeology and science and people and excitement and, uh, and all other things, which I, if I mention the next word, I would give away the whole plot, and I won't uh, do that. So, Anne, you've, you've described a good book. It's a good read. It's a very interesting read. Uh, but it, what other things did you put into this? Because, I mean, you're talking about women warriors, and I think that you, earlier in your description of the, uh, the Russo-Finnish War, uh, you talked about the uh, lack of focus in other books or other works about the role of women and also in the ancient world men were the only people that got their their uh, uh, their their billings what about this book what did, did you try to deal with the role of women uh, in modern society I I, 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 I'll tell you what, I, I, I noticed that in pop culture now, there are all sorts of uh, films now with super, super female superheroes. You know, in the X-Men, there's an X-Woman, too. And, you know, they're, you know, they're out there uh, dressed in, in very tight outfits and squeaky boots and so on. And that's wonderful. But at the same time, 
they're missing something for me. I'm, I'm all for having uh, female heroes. Uh, I just would like to see a little more diversity. Uh, I, I'm, I'm getting very tired of, 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 the, of the extremely, of, of basically, uh, you know, the Barbie superhero. I'm tired of seeing her in her black uh, latex. I'd like to see something that's a little closer to reality because uh, if you look at history, women are heroes too. And, uh, and it might be a little a, a tired thing to say now because for, for quite a few decades now, uh, there's been a great interest in, in, uh, in recreating uh, women's history and looking at the female side of things. So this is not, I'm not revolutionizing anything here. I'm just saying I would like to see a little more depth and um, I'd like to see more diversity. And so my, uh, my uh, Amazons, um, you know, I, 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 didn't, I didn't just rewrite the legend the way that you'll find it in, uh, in, in those quick read uh, Greek myth books. Uh, I actually looked at all the evidence we have all the written evidence about the Amazons. And what I discovered and what really interested me was that um, there is a tradition saying that the original Amazons actually came from North Africa. See, all, the whole rest of the tradition has the Amazons around the Black Sea in northern Turkey uh, and so on. They're, they're living very close to the Greeks. But this tradition saying they came from North Africa intrigued me immensely, partly because I've always been fascinated by this uh, region. And I was so fascinated by it that my mother, my wonderful mother, took me there uh, on a trip to Tunisia uh, when I was only 14 years old. And it, was, it had a tremendous impact on me at that point. Um, my mom also happened to tell everybody that I was writing a book, <laughs> which was very embarrassing at the time. But it turned out to be true, uh, and and I'm drawing on these, these experiences and and really following my love of that area. So, so you have women who are actually not uh, those sort of white Caucasian uh, women that we generally imagine the Amazons to be. You have uh, women of very mixed origin coming together. And, uh, and you certainly have that, too, in the present day. And I don't want to ruin it too much, but I will suggest that, uh, that something that, that was very powerful 3,000 years ago, uh, a group of women living uh, together, and it, it might have been such a good idea that, um, that it's still around, even in our present-day world. Uh, what a compelling idea, eh, John? I mean, uh, sort of a vigilante core of women who, uh, who travel around and punish evil? Gee, that's another book. <laughs> All right. Now, in the um, in this book, also you tease out the relationships between the various uh, women characters uh, in groups and as individuals, uh, and the rest of society, including other that other group called men. Um, it, it was an it, it's an interesting and textured look also at that. At that, at those relationships, that I think uh, made it interesting to me. Uh, did you consciously do that? Absolutely. I mean, everything I do. I'd like to think that everything I do is is conscious. But but uh, but sometimes there are happy coincidences, of course. But I will say that I I am trying to challenge uh, the the paradigms a little bit here. Uh, in this book, I'm I'm sort of tossing everything into the air, or you know. Uh, untying some of the nuts of how things are supposed to be with gender, with with race, with heroes and heroines. I'm trying to turn everything uh, a little bit on its head here, as you've noticed. Um, so, so, so there's there's a lot of, of of diversity in this book, and and there's a lot of play with men and women. You have a traditional uh, model that that still survives and then it's being challenged of course by a whole other way of life and our main character uh, in the present day finds herself sort of sandwiched between uh, those two ways of doing things she still has this old paradigm but she also there's also this whole other world of freedom uh, the question is um, where do you find happiness really because um, you know, by liberating ourselves from from our traditions, uh, sometimes we find that we manage to somehow tear our roots 
out, and it does not necessarily lead to happiness. So, so, so for me, the reason I'm doing this, the reason I'm turning things upside down, the reason I'm playing with, with gender and all those things, is is that I want to find out uh, what it takes to give each individual a chance, the best chance at happiness. Really, and of course, that's very conceited of me. Uh, but, but I'm not trying to tell everybody to, how to be happy and how to live their lives. I'm just saying, um, I think it's worthwhile sometimes asking ourselves, uh, you know, the way I'm living my life. Am I doing this because I feel a pressure to do so, or because I truly want to? History is a fascinating thing. It it tends, as I said earlier in the show. Sometimes it tends to repeat itself, sometimes perfectly repi- perfect, perfect repetition, but other times uh, sort of uh, analogous situations. Do you see in your book and discussion of the various you know, themes that you were, you're dealing with uh, parallels in the Amazon world to modern times? And, uh, and not, just the, not just the ones you, you wrote about in your book, but but uh, you're, you're looking at yourself. You're an intelligent uh, Ph.D. and, and uh, uh, thoughtful, classical writer, and you also know modern communications through uh, movies and uh, creating documentaries. Uh, do you see parallels to this, to today's age? Absolutely, it is. It is. It is impossible not to see parallels. As you say, uh, we keep basically uh, repeating the same mistakes over and over through history, and and especially in today's day when people don't care too much about history, we're more, much more likely to make enormous mistakes uh, that that you know <laughs> you could have prevented by just seeing how how badly that went once. Uh, I think that uh, I see uh, a, a, a corruption. There's a corruption that happens when people get too much power. And that is a corruption that we can trace back in history very, very far. Uh, and that has not changed. And, and you can see the rolling around of empires. Uh, you can choose to, to read, to see history, uh, the history of mankind as a history of one empire after the other that comes, uh, causes lots of pain, and then goes away, and so on and so forth. Uh, at its time, it may help people to live in peace in certain places, but the cost of the empire is far, far greater, I think, than, than the happiness outcome of it. And that is uh, something that the Amazons are dealing with. They simply decide we are going to live outside of empire. We're going to live outside of this, this sort of the state that constantly tries to amass power. These power-hungry individuals who have this uh, fatal conceit of thinking that they can, by controlling other people's uh, rights and other people's opportunities, they can somehow design a life that works perfectly for everyone. This is this is something that we are still seeing today. You might argue even even more so than back then. We have uh, so many more experts and so many more advisors to the president who think that they can figure out how to make choices for other people, how to spend other people's money and make the best choices. It is, it is, it is a conceit that is as old as man and woman. Uh, we never seem to really learn from the mistakes of the past, but what can I do? I can try to illuminate it by looking at history, <laughs> but it's mm-hmm. really up to each individual to realize that, um, that we, have, uh, we have given up far too much freedom in this day and age. You know, it's it's a. Um, I, I also like history because of its uh, diversity and yet its repetitiousness. That is, you, one can get your arms around. For example, you you talked about Churchill, who um, did, decided that it was okay for the Finnish to survive because they really fought hard. But uh, you know, Churchill and and many of the other leaders who we revere, uh, but especially uh, uh, the the uh, uh, the fellow who gave up Czechoslovakia, 
um, the uh, the Prime Minister um, Chamberlain, uh, they you know they simply agreed and gave away uh, without the uh, approval of the Czech government or at least a forced approval. Um, they gave away a country of X number of millions of people and large um, um, natural resources, people resources to the Germans, to the, to, the, to the Nazis. I don't even say the Germans, to the Nazis. And partially it was a complicated thing. Some, part of it was they didn't have enough physical power to resist. But secondly, they didn't choose to resist because it— it just didn't seem important. Our peace seemed, their peace seemed to be more important than worrying about the Czechs uh, and the Nazis. Um, I, I am struck by the, the repetition of those events, and yet um, you have to understand the complexities of the decisions that those people made and the balancing and the conditions within, with, within which they made those decisions. I don't know if you, uh, this also resonates. You're, you're a Dane. Um, many of uh, my friends uh, are Danish uh, from Denmark, Copenhagen. Um, um, several were uh, priests who, uh, uh, Catholic priests who um, uh, started in, in either Copenhagen or in Greenland, one of them, and have been a deep part of the life of, of Europe and Denmark, um, prominent part. And it, it's interesting to listen to them and talk to them and see uh, there are stories about, for example, when the Germans marched in, uh, the Nazi armies marched into Denmark. I, I was with a, a gentleman at an opera um, at, um, in Copenhagen, and he and his family, he and his, his wife took me back to their apartment. We had a long talk about he had been in the Danish army, and his uncle was the head of the Danish forces uh, down at the, uh, w- the border when the Germans marched in. And uh, the description of that he gave of uh, of the occupation, the invasion and occupation, and that my other friends gave me, uh, gave me a really interesting picture of the Danish people themselves, uh, and how the the resistance that went on. Um, it's it's a uh, again we we there are parallels to this modern world, unfortunately, and we hope that we learn from history and not make our the same mistakes again. Santayana, where are you? But absolutely. It, at any rate, in uh, in summary, in this, we're, we're unfortunately kind of running out of time here, and I, I'd like to know what's next. Well, as you can see, and I, I agree with you completely. That, you know, the, the more you learn about history, the more disgusted you are with politicians and politics, then the less can you get it. Across, out of your mouth that someone was a hero. You know, I have a very hard time saying that anyone in history was a hero, even Churchill, uh, if you start balancing out what people did. Um, I believe that people, at their core, everybody is born peace-loving and good. It is what happens around us that forms us into who we become, and politicians who have far too much power, even more so. So I'm looking into uh, one of those very, very, very crucial uh, times, uh, the Renaissance uh, France, uh, that was at the center of attention uh, uh, for, you know, what what was going to happen to Europe, the, the struggle between Protestantism and Catholicism, the pressures of Spain and so on. So my next book is going to look at the reign of Catherine de Medici, uh, Renaissance queen of, 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 of France, and it's going to be set in, in Paris uh, in the 16th century. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to that, to expose really what you might argue is, is the origin of the idea that, that, that people need to be governed to be happy. Right, that that whole origin of statism and governmentalism that the French love so much, and that unfortunately we've all taken over from them. Well, uh, I, I want to hasten to say right now before the show is over that I, in fact, um, am a recovering politician, not an active politician. And so, what you say about grabbing power, I certainly don't. I, I don't. Uh, I don't have any to to grab and uh, and to hold on to. 
Ann, thank you very much. This has been a wonderful discussion. I, I always enjoy talking to you, and, and I hope that your program, your movie, your, your books, and your new book uh, are going to be great successes. And I do want you to come back and talk about that new book when it's uh, finished, and maybe we'll talk about something else because you have a wide range of uh, thoughtful uh, considerations of our, of our modern world and of, and of the relationship in our last show, one of our last shows, talking about the relationship between Scandinavian literature and American literature. Um, so thank you very much. The name of our program is With Respect. We are on every Sunday morning at 11 and every Thursday morning at 10. Until next time, remember our motto. If you show respect to other people, they will show respect to you. And thank you very much. Thank you, John. It was wonderful to be with you. 